At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. Well, how many are grateful for the Word of God? We're going to go back into the Word of God this morning. We've been in a series with an interesting name. The name of the series is Family Why Bother? And it certainly picks up the sentiment of our age where family is up under a lot of pressure, a lot of threat, uh, maybe even for a new generation. They're questioning, why get married? Why have children? Why start a family in the first First place, is it worth the trouble? Certainly, family brings us tremendous joy, but family can also bring us tremendous heartache as well. How do we navigate through what it means to be a family in the face of a fallen world? Well, that's what we've tried to undertake, and the way that we've approached this is by looking at the first family, what we can learn by examining the first family looking at Genesis. Today, we're going to continue on the story of the first family in Genesis chapter 4. But let me, as you turn to Genesis chapter 4 and you join me there, let me do a quick recap of what we have found about family and why family is so important. Family is the most foundational social unit given to our world. The Bible makes this clear that before there was the church, there was a family. Before there was the nation of Israel, there was a family. I think it's interesting that the narrative of humanity starts not with an organization, not with a nation, not with a group, but it starts with a family. And that family was supposed to reflect or live in the image and likeness of God. Now, this is important because from the very beginning, God sets the model for how we are to live one with another. What we see in the Godhead is the Trinity. We serve a triune God, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. Now, it would take hours and hours to unpack all of that, but what I want you to understand is that in God, there is perfect community and perfect unity. And what God wants for our families is to reflect the infinite love that the persons of the Trinity have for each other. One God, three persons, perfect unity, perfect community. But yet, I think we'd all be honest if we were to look at our families and as we examine the first family, uh, we all fall short of that. None of us reflect the infinite love of the Trinity. None of us expect, uh, uh, reflect or express that perfect unity and community. And why is that? Well, it's because of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, last week we were introduced to the fall of humanity. In other words, sin entered into the perfect story. And what we learned is that sin separates us from God. But today what we're going to see is that sin not only brings separation, but oftentimes it brings 
aggression as well. The sin often brings violence to families as well. If you examine our world today, and maybe like me, you've been asking the question, why is there so much anger? Why is there so much hostility? Why is there so much hatred? Why is there so much violence in our culture and in our world? Well, the answer is, as the family goes, so goes the culture. As the family goes, so goes our nation. As the family goes, so goes our church. As a matter of fact, we should not uh, fool ourselves. The reality is you can't build a strong church on the backs of weak families. We, as we pray for God's spirit to move, as we pray, Lord, sin revival, let there be another great awakening. How many want to see these things? How many want to see a massive move of the spirit of God? Well, we need to begin to pray, Lord, let it start in our families and in our homes. So last week we were introduced again to the fall and God's grace even in Adam and Eve's sin But today we look at what happens in life after the fall. And what we're going to discover today is that uh, this sense of pride, how it destroys and impacts individuals and families. As a matter of fact, uh, the big idea of today's text is that faithless pride destroys fallen people. Let's look at Adam and Eve after the fall. Uh, The first two verses of chapter 4 kind of sets the scene for us. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and then bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. Now there's a lot that's there. I could spend the rest of our time together just in these two verses. The first thing that we need to be aware of is that this is the first time where sexual intimacy is introduced in the narrative of humanity. This is the first time we are told that Adam knew Eve. That word knew refers to intimacy, physical intimacy. And I think it's worth noting, just as we have noted throughout the study of Genesis, how our ethics are found in Scripture, that we don't get our ethics about life, about social order, about relationships. We don't get those from culture. We don't get our marching orders about how we should conduct relationships or even ourselves ethically from popular opinion. The Bible doesn't put itself out for a vote and say to society, how do you think relationships should go? How many thank God that we have an owner's manual and that the manufacturer tells us how he intends us to function in order for us to have life and that more abundantly. Well, it should be noted in this will not be without controversy, at least in this culture, that sex is introduced in the covenant relationship of marriage. This has always been God's plan. It has always been the ethics and the parameters of human sexuality. The human sexuality is powerful. It is powerful. It is full of passion. God has designed it that way. 
And in order for it not to be destructive, he has set parameters on it. And what is the parameters that he has set on it? From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, what we see is marriage, the covenant of marriage, the safety of a covenantal relationship is what allows a husband and a wife to fully give themselves one to another without fear of brokenness, without fear of shame. Adam and Eve being restored by God's grace after the fall, enter into this covenant relationship of marriage, and this is where we see the full expression of sexual intimacy. But I also want you to see something else about sex that I think is important for us to know. That in God's plan, the human sexuality is expressed through the covenant of marriage, but also connected to procreation. And one of the things that we have seen during this uh, kind of modern day sexual revolution is this quest by humanity to separate somehow sexuality and sexual intimacy from procreation. How can we have sex without children? And this has been the quest of humanity, but it's not been the plan of God. And what it's led to is a culture of abortion. And the culture of abortion is a direct byproduct of man's quest to have sexuality apart from procreation. As I said, there's a lot that's there just in these two verses. But as we go forward, what we see is that Eve says, God has blessed me with a man-child. That's how it would be rendered in the original text. As a, with a man-child, this son came. Now, why would she rejoice over that? Well, she would rejoice over that because if you remember, in chapter three, there were curses and judgments that were given out, but there was also a promise that the woman's seed would be at enmity with the seed of the serpent, and that while the serpent seed would uh, crush his heel, he would crush his head. There would ultimately be victory for humanity over the work of the enemy, the serpent that comes to deceive, not just Eve, but all of humanity, and to separate us from God. Ultimately, he would be defeated. How many thank God that the devil's going to be defeated? That the devil is defeated. Amen. And so for Eve, this man-child represents a promise, a promise that God would ultimately defeat sin and evil. Uh, now, I don't know if she fully understood that the promise was going to come through the promised seed of the Messiah. I don't know if she had a full grasp of that, but she did know this, that God was a promise keeper. And for her, this moment represented blessing, blessing even after the fall. Praise God that my sin and my failure does not have to be the final chapter or story of my life, and neither does yours. If we turn to God in grace, accept Accepting his sacrifice, if we trust him in faith, there could be promise even after the fall. These two sons are born, and now we have a little bit of narrative about work. That work is a blessing. 
that God blesses Adam and Eve with two sons, and he blesses these two sons with work. Abel, a shepherd, and Cain, a farmer. This could be called the story of the shepherd and the farmer, both given this gift of work, and the Bible gives no commentary that one work was better than the other. See, all work is worship when offered back to God. All work is a blessing. Don't look at work as a curse. Work is a blessing when offered unto God. As a matter of fact, my prayer for you is that Mondays will feel as holy as Sundays. That when we gather together to worship, that there will be a sense of praise God, but also as we go to work, that there will be a sense of praise God. That I get a chance to offer to him, not just the fruit of my lips through songs that we sing, not just uh, gathering together in corporate worship, but I get to the opportunity through work to offer to him my talents, my abilities, the works of my hands and my mind for his glory. I tell my children this all the time, that mom and I uh, don't care what, what line of work you go into, as long as it's not immoral or illegal. But the key is whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. If you're an engineer, do it unto the Lord. If you're a teacher, do it unto the Lord. If your work is at home, raising a family, do it unto the Lord. If your work is uh, an engineer, do it unto the Lord. A doctor, do it unto the Lord. Whatever you have been gifted to do, do it unto the Lord. Amen? And so Abel, the shepherd, do it unto the Lord. Cain, the farmer, do it unto the Lord. But how do you come into the presence of a God who is holy? Well, we pick up that story in verse number three. And in verse number three, what we're gonna see is that a failure of faith is the front door to pride. The story takes a sad turn. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So much of this is straightforward. How do we come into the presence of a holy God? Well, it's not clear at this point in the biblical narrative, in the unfolding of progressive revelation, whether or not it was self-motivated that they brought these offerings before the Lord, or whether or not it was somehow commanded to them or instructed to them by their parents or by God himself. But what is very clear is that it was very understood that to come into the presence of God, we should come in with the sacrifice, with an offering as unto the Lord. I would say as a parenthetical statement that that should be true for us as well. We should bring the offering of praise. Anytime we come into the presence of the Lord, we should bring before him the offering of praise as we thank God for the offering that was offered on our behalf on the cross of Christ, the Lamb of God 
who was slain for the sins of humanity. How many thank God for the eternal offering of Jesus Christ? Amen? And this is why we should praise. As a matter of fact, we shouldn't need pom-poms or cheerleaders or a music band to praise God. Thank God we have this wonderful orchestra, but if they were removed, how many know he would still be worthy of all of our praise? If we had no singers, no choir, how many know he would still be worthy of all of our praise? As a matter of fact, you should be praising him at home, offering the best of your worship from a heart that is full of gratefulness and gratitude even when you're not here in the house of the Lord. What is clear is that two offered offerings before him. One is Abel and the other is Cain. Now Cain offered an offering to the Lord that God didn't regard. He, He took no pleasure in. He didn't commend him for it. Abel offered to the Lord something that pleased the heart of God. Now, the question that should be asked of this simple passage is why? That's the complex question is, what was it about Abel's offering that God regarded that he did not regard about Cain's offering? Well, again, this is where we are blessed to be able to have uh, the full Uh, unfolding of the canon of scripture. So keep your finger here and let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. This is the chapter on faith. Many of you know this chapter. And it's in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament where we see a commentary on this moment by the writer of Hebrews. And it says in verse number four, by faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous by God, commending him by accepting his gifts. This is the key. The key that made Abel's offering acceptable to God was his faith in God. Now, when it comes to faith in God concerning Cain and Abel, I don't think that the issue was faith or whether or not God existed. I think the issue of debate here was faith over whether or not God is good. And really, one of the things that we see here is that our offering really reveals our faith. Our faith in the goodness of God, our attitude as we approach him, our attitude as we worship him, our attitudes even as we pray, it reveals whether or not we truly have faith that God is good. Somewhere in the heart of Cain, there was this contempt for God. Somewhere in the heart of Cain, there was this doubt over the goodness of God. Abel bringing an offering that was accepted by God was because he had faith in God. It wasn't a difference between um, the, uh, the shepherd's offering or the farmer's offering. This isn't a commentary on whether or not animals are more impressive than wheat or grain. This is a commentary on the hearts of humanity. Let's look at another passage that speaks to this. First John, flip uh, further in your New Testament. First John chapter three. And it says here in verse John chapter three, verse 11, I'll start there. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. What does this tell us? This tells us a lot about, about Cain. This tells us a lot about his heart. That somehow he didn't trust God. He didn't have faith towards God. That he had contempt for the ways of God, the will of God, the goodness of God. And the Bible says because of his doubt over those things, because of his distrust of God, it led him to evil acts. This is why I say that faithfulness, faithlessness rather, is the front door of pride. That a lack of faith in God and his goodness opens the door for us to think more highly of ourselves than what we should. Us to have a more flattering opinion of our own ways of thinking and our own philosophies. Friends, let me just remind you that God's word is true and it is right and it is good. That there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end of our way always leads to destruction when it is apart from God. The interesting thing about pride, it's a hard thing to preach on because all of us can see it with 20-20 vision when it's in somebody else. But all of us are blind to pride when it's within us. If I were to do an altar call for pride, who's struggling with pride in their heart, it'd be hard pressed to have somebody stand up and say, it's me, it's me, it's me. And the reason why we often are blinded to our own pride is that pride is a self-justifier. What I mean by that is pride always justifies itself. It always makes an excuse for why it's right for us to behave with a haughtiness, with an over-exalted view of ourselves than what we should. It takes the Holy Spirit of God to reveal to us when there's pride in our own lives. I would simply ask that you would join me in a humble prayer of Lord, show me where pride exists within me, because what we're going to see is that the more pride, the more sin. I wish I could tell you that the story of Cain and Abel stopped here, This Cain walked away a little bit disheartened, but he got back on the right path, but I can't tell you that. It goes on, and it's, it gets even worse. In verse number six, it says, uh, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He says, I do not know Am I my brother's keeper? What a sad narrative. That the first murder we see in scripture happens in a family. That the place where there should be safety and protection, where there should be, again, covenantal love, is a place where violence is enacted. What it shows us is that where pride is, there is no limit to what we would do. Never say in your heart, there's no way I would ever do that. Never find yourself, as you hear the stories of people, people's sin and fallenness, 
Be careful when you find yourself wagging your head in judgment saying, I can't believe they would do something so uh, foolish, so stupid, so evil. Many of us have heard this statement before, but by the grace of God, there go I. It's only the grace of God that keeps us from making the mistake that we would say we would never make. I don't know if you interviewed Cain before he killed Abel and asked him, would you ever murder your brother if he would say yes? I would imagine that he probably would have said, no, I would never stoop that low. But this is what happens when pride gets into our heart. It takes us to a place that we say we would never go, a place where we oftentimes never return from either. Don't think of sin as a fun vacation that you could always come home from. The reality is, I know a lot of people, and so do you, who have taken vacations to the land of sin, who have never come back to God again. Pray each and every day, God, keep my heart. Keep my heart from pride, from haughtiness, from being resistant to you, to not trusting in you like I should. It's interesting, Cain's response. He got angry, and let's, let's see again, why did he get angry? It's because Abel offered a better sacrifice to the Lord. I've told you before that my father was a school teacher, so I grew up in the home of an educator. And one of the, the things that I often notice, and this is true in the human heart, often one of the things that we see in, in education is you can have two students in the same class. And one student who's getting all A's, doing a great job. Another student who's not putting in the work or for whatever reason is struggling and not doing as well. And you know, quite often what you'll have is that the student that's struggling, instead of admiring the student who's doing well, instead of going over to the student who's doing well and saying, hey, can you show me the secret sauce? Can you teach me the formula? What's the formula to your success? How is it that you're getting all A's? How is it that you're acing the homework or the quizzes or the exams? Instead of taking that approach, quite often the struggling student will have contempt for the student who's doing well. And this is exactly what we have right here. We have a student who's not putting in the work named Cain, not giving God of his best, giving God what's left over because he doesn't trust him, being angry at a student who's getting the approval of the teacher because he's giving God of his best. Friends, when we see the blessing of the Lord upon somebody's life, let's not have contempt for them. When we see somebody excelling in Christ, when we see uh, the Lord's favor on somebody's life, let's not have contempt for them, but let's um, maybe uh, pull them to the side and say, hey, can you, can you walk with me and help me to learn how to trust God like you trust God? Help me to learn how to pray and seek the Lord like you seek the Lord. Help me to learn how to worship God like you worship God. But you know what that will require? Humility. Humility. That's what was missing from Cain's life. If you want to know the moral of the story of, of what we see here in chapter 4, it's that faithless pride destroys fallen people. Well, let me conclude by showing you how pride kills relationships. Verses 10 through 14. So the Lord asked him that question. You remember, where's your brother? 
then in verse number 10. And again, anytime God asks a question of humanity, it's not that he doesn't know. He's asking us a question that forces us to search our own hearts. And he says here, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. It's really interesting that Cain feels somehow that God is unfair. This judgment will lead to the death of me. Well, you just killed somebody. Who are you to negotiate that somehow this is unfair? But I want you to see in this heartbreaking story, not only the effects of pride, but the mercy of God. If we go back to verses six through nine, we see God reasoning with Cain. Cain, why is your face fallen? Why are you so distraught? Don't you know that sin wants to master you? How many by the show of hands know that, that sin wants to master you? Sin wants to destroy your marriage if you're married. Sin wants to ruin your testimony if you're single. Sin wants to destroy your relationship with your kids if you're a parent. Sin wants to rob you of a relationship with your grandchildren. Sin wants to master you, but you've got to master it. Sin is contrary to what your desire is. You want to be blessed. How many want your family to be blessed? Amen? Sin wants the opposite. What sin wants to do is to bring you to a place of pride where you say, I'm never going to apologize. It's pride. I'm never going to admit I'm wrong. That's pride. I'm never going to extend forth the olive branch. That's pride. I'm never going to be the one that says, hey, can we come together and sit down and talk this out? After all, I feel wronged. Somehow, in his soul, Cain felt that he was wronged, wronged by God and wronged by his brother who did absolutely nothing to him. And this may seem as far from you as any narrative or story in Scripture, but it is far closer to the reality of what's happening in many of our families than we care to admit. Again, as the family goes, so goes the culture. As the family goes, so goes the church. So if we don't solve this pride thing in our homes, if we don't humble ourselves with our spouses, if we can't humble ourselves with our brothers and sisters, if we can't humble ourselves with our children and grandchildren, what hope do we have to reach the world? An unreconciled church will never reach an unreconciled world. And so may we learn from Cain May we heed what Cain ignored, and that is the pleadings of a holy God to come to him in humility. Cain could have avoided all of this if he would have simply humbled himself before God and said, Lord, it's, it's me that's in the need of prayer. So today as we close, I invite you to stand with me. We're just going to simply close in prayer. 
Service has been a little bit longer today. I think it's been good to take communion together, to worship together, to pray for our leaders together. All of those things are important, to study his word. The most important question as we end every message is, how now shall I live? That's the question that we all have to grapple with. God, you've shown me your truth in your word. How does this apply to my life? I don't know where it applies. I don't know how it applies, but I know this. There are no mistakes in God. The fact that he has you here today means that this word was meant for you. I know that the temptation when you hear a message like this is to think of all the people who you feel like should have heard this. I got a brother, I got a friend, I got a neighbor, I got a spouse who should have heard this. But God in his providence and wisdom felt that it was you who needed it. So may God search our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, when we surrender our hearts to you, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would um, search our hearts. Lord, may we be a people of humility and not of pride. May we go the way of Abel and not the way of Cain. Thank you that you're a promise keeper and you're a God who offers us mercy and grace even when we don't deserve it. Lord, heal our homes so that we might be used by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.